Uh, good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, if you're joining us online, it's good to see you there as well. I'm so glad that you are here, though. And yes, this is part number 34 in a series through the Gospel of Mark. And yes, as Pastor Nathan alluded to, this is the final installment of this series as we've been going through this wonderful gospel. Uh, it's hard to believe that we're here. <laughs> I can't believe that it's uh, been just, uh, I think I started this uh, sermon series actually last August, so the last Sunday in July, now we are closing it out of a, a year later, 34 sermons later, we have gone through, or we will have gone through, 16 chapters of Mark's gospel presenting as we have been everywhere looking this unprecedented and almost, I would also say, un- unexpected look at this Jesus that we have here. And that's really what I was thinking long and hard about because uh, we come to Mark 16, and of course it's the resurrection chapter, and, and we, it's perhaps, quote, easy to come up with a sermon. But how do you uh, come up with a sermon that sort of gives due diligence to that storyline while also uh, sort of concluding all of the plot points, so to speak, that have gone before it, that succinctly wraps up a sermon series Uh, And I was thinking long and hard about how to do that. And then just looking at chapter 16, I think the answer becomes clear. Because chapter 16, if you look at Mark chapter 16, uh, it gives a really interesting perspective in the way it presents the resurrection account. By which I mean this, that for a resurrection chapter... Talking about Jesus rising from the dead. As, our, as the hymn, we, yes, we, we sang that his buried body, when it begins to breathe and he walks out of that grave, there's very little space and time given to Jesus in this chapter. Actually, if you read the whole thing, it's actually focused a lot more on the reactions, on the responses, on sort of the mindset of his apostles, of those who were following him. There's a lot more focus given to what they were going through and how they were going to respond and how they are to now take into account this news that has happened. This news of Jesus' resurrection. This, I think, is in keeping, actually, with the whole theme of the entire gospel. If you remember from Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, there again, the focus is on the disciples' reactions, not on the magical or spiritual way Jesus has allowed five loaves and two fishes to feed a crowd of 5,000 people. Instead, it's the reaction of the apostles who are dumbfounded at the fact that Jesus has this power. And again, here, it carries through to this final chapter. Where now we are made to see that the apostles are still a little bit dumbfounded. <laughs> That this Jesus, the teacher that they've been with for so long, has this kind of power. Notice uh, verse 1. Because chapter 16 opens on Sunday morning, which is important. It says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they may come and anoint him, anoint Jesus. These women, the women, by the way, if you go back to chapter 15, verses uh, 40 and 41, the same women, the same group of ladies that were there uh, sort of witnessing the crucifixion are now on the Sunday, Sunday morning after the Sabbath day. They are now coming to the tomb to consecrate their Lord's body. They come with sweet spices, with oils. They come that, uh, so they might revere their Lord's body. Notice verse 2. 
It says, And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. Here, it's indicative of their devotion. Their love for Jesus is on display here. Their love for this Lord that they had come to adore, that they had come to follow, is here on display as they are coming. And yes, acting perhaps even a little bit hastily. Notice verse 3. I love this fact that Mark includes that in their haste to show love and reverence for their Lord, they forgot. They forgot about the practical fact of the stone blocking the tomb. Verse 3. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? They'd forgotten about that part. Their love and their devotion for Jesus had sort of allowed them to forget about the logistics of trying to enter this tomb at all. Their spices wouldn't really do much if they couldn't enter the tomb. But as they draw near, I love this fact, verse 4. It says, notice, and they looked, and the inference there is they looked up. There's this idea that these women are going to this tomb expecting to find a corpse of their Lord. Their heads are down. Their faces are to the ground. Still, yes, mourning the fact of what has transpired a few days previous. And they look up. As they are going towards the tomb, they look up. And the stone is rolled away already. Their uh, fear, their, the, the, the barricading of the tomb has already been taken care of. And again, at this point, though. Resurrection is the last thing on their minds. Look at verse 4 again. And when they looked, looked up, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. Resurrection isn't on their minds. They were expecting to find a dead Jesus, a corpse of their Lord that they could anoint, that they could bring these spices and give a proper burial. This is the least we can do, they are thinking. And yet when they find this tomb, not only do they find it open, they also don't find any evidence of Jesus' body inside. Instead, there is a spiritual figure there. Resurrection isn't on their minds. They're thinking, what is going on? What's happening here? Where's Jesus' body? You can understand that now they are, as it says here in the King James, they are affrighted. They are terrified. They are alarmed and astounded that all of the things that they were expecting to see, they did not find. And yes, here the angel speaks directly to them and their fears. Notice he says, and he saith unto them, be not affrighted, be not terrified, be not alarmed. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth. Which was crucified. He is risen. Amen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter. That he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. As he said unto you. He speaks directly to these women. Your fear can be abated. By the fact that he is not here. He isn't stolen. His body hasn't been taken away by grave robbers. He isn't here because he's missing. He's here because he has risen. And the message of this throws these women into disarray. Look at verse 8. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher. For they trembled and they were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man. For they were afraid. What do we make of this? 
They are in, caught in wonder and confused. In fact, that's what that word there, amazed, implies. It, it is actually implying a blending, a mixture of fear and wonder. They are, yes, likely afraid of what this means, but they're also wondering at the fact of what this means. And they flee, stunned, in stunned silence. Notice it says that they said neither, uh, verse 8 again, neither said they anything to any man. They quickly make their way to the apostles in stunned silence. The tomb is empty. The tomb that they had seen Jesus placed in is now vacant. This is the moment. This day. This Sunday. Back here 2,000 odd years ago. This is the day that I would like to say changed everything. Everything shifted on this day. The lives of all of these people that are here on this day. That saw this risen Lord were yes transfigured. They were transformed. They were changed. And such is, that's what I want to look at this morning. In the remainder of this chapter I want to look at two uh, different uh, sort of ways in which Jesus' followers are changed. And the first way is it comes in verses 9 through 13. I want to look at the pain of Jesus' followers in the aftermath of the cross. Because we have this moment. Jesus' body is now missing. There's rumors swirling around. All of these faithful of Jesus are now hearing this news. Jesus is missing. Not resurrected. Missing. If you go to John chapter 20, you don't have to go there, but you can find there that Mary's first reaction when she sees this empty tomb is that they have taken the Lord's body and I don't know where they have laid him. Resurrection wasn't on her mind. They've stolen his body. Something's going on. There's a plot that's still afoot. There's something happening here and we are not sure of what this is. Here you can see it. In these women's reaction, and yes, even now in the apostles' reaction. The fear that struck the women that visited this empty, vacant tomb this Sunday morning is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the misapprehension, the confusion on the part of Jesus' apostles. For the apostles themselves, the eleven, the now eleven, because at this point Judas has hung himself, the eleven here... They are still in a time of weeping and mourning and pain. You see, for the apostles, the aftermath of the cross wasn't victory, at least in the immediate. It was pain. Look at verse 9. It says, now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. By this time, the women have already come to report about the empty tomb. You can go to John 20. It gives sort of a more elaborated version of this account. And also by this point, Peter and John, if you remember, have heard this news. And they don't really believe it at first. And they race out. And they have a race. Because John includes the fact that he made it to the tomb first. But Peter and John raced to this empty tomb to verify what the women have seen. And yes, they find it just as empty as they said. But apparently Mary went with Peter and John. Because John chapter 20 verse 11 says that she stayed behind. And here we have this very account where she is now staying behind. And it says that she stayed behind because she is grieving. Actually, let me read that verse just so you can get the context. John chapter 20 verse 11 provides this detail. It says, but Mary stood without 
After Peter and John have gone their separate ways, after witnessing the tomb vacant, it says Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. She's weeping because she doesn't know where Jesus is. And to her, Jesus is dead. There's a period at the end of that sentence for her. And yet, verse 9, back in our text, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary. To this grieving woman, Jesus appears first. Out of all the people that see Jesus in his resurrected glory and in his risen body, the first person is Mary Magdalene. A woman whom had been rescued from demon possession. There's a lot there. There's a lot to that fact. It's a remarkable and unexpected moment that Jesus would appear to this woman at this time in this fashion. Now, some people nowadays, well, they, well, they want to turn this moment into the basis for having women preachers. Now, I don't want to get into that topic at this time, but I'll just say I don't think that that's what this passage is meaning. That's not what this is what this is doing. This moment is not sort of a statement about who and who does not belong in the pastorate or the pulpit. I think actually this is meant to show us that this ministry of scandal, I might say, that Jesus has everywhere been carrying out is still going on. By that I mean, just remember who Jesus first appeared to when, or excuse me, when the first announcement of Jesus' birth on this earth, who was it to? Shepherds. The lowest on the low of the social status. They were low-ranking people and citizens in the first century. It was a scandal to the fact that the first evangelist, so to speak, of Jesus' birth would be shepherds. And yes, in much poetry, the first uh, announcement, the first, quote, evangelist of Jesus' resurrection is, yes, a woman. One whose story would not likely be regarded. In this first century day, women's testimonies weren't highly regarded if they were regarded at all. They they couldn't be witnesses in a court. They held little to no public consideration if they were testifying to something. Therefore, Jesus here appearing to Mary Magdalene is, yes, again, showing Jesus' scandalous preference to give the good news to people who are unexpected, to people who are unworthy, who are deemed unfit according to social standards. Not just a woman, an ex-demoniac at that. This is what this moment is referring to. It's suggesting that this Mary, yes, is important to Jesus. And notice what she does. And it says, verse 10... And she went and told them, the apostles that had been with them, as they mourned and wept. They, uh, as we learn from John chapter 20, the apostles, the eleven, have locked themselves in a room. They have locked themselves here out of fear of the Jews. And here Mary comes in and she tells them this news. I have seen Jesus. I know where he is now. He is alive. He hasn't been stolen. He hasn't been taken away by some grave robber. He's alive. I've seen him. And notice in they, verse 11, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed 
not. Much in keeping with the first century traditions, they just completely dismiss her testimony. Luke chapter 24 verse 11 tells us that they render Mary's story an idle tale. Nothing to be believed, nothing to waste their time on, just something that she's making up. She's out of her mind. She doesn't, they don't believe her at all. They refuse to put any sort of stock or weight into what Mary is telling them. And here you can see that the apostles, they are in pain. The reaction of to the cross wasn't, again, rejoicing. It was pain. They were mourning and weeping over the death of their teacher. They are lamenting. Yes, lamenting Jesus' death as if that is final. They weren't expecting the resurrection. They weren't expecting this moment to happen, even though perhaps they should have. Because Jesus was everywhere predicting the fact that he would rise from the dead. But the apostles, you see, had seen Jesus die. They had seen the corpse of Jesus taken off that cross. And for them, there was a period at the end of the sentence, Jesus is dead. It was final. There was a finality. The Calvary, uh, the cross of Calvary had just rendered all of their dreams about the Messianic kingdom, about them overthrowing Rome, about them taking over, about them ruling with this Jesus. All of those hopes had been dashed. All of those dreams had crumbled and the fact that the cross had rendered their teacher dead. Therefore, you can imagine when Mary busts into the room and says, he's not dead, he's alive. It's not just idle, it's offensive. To the apostles, they can be scandalized by this fact. By the fact that this Mary is now telling them that the one that they are mourning and lamenting is alive. He's not dead. But as if that were not enough, notice verse 12. Because it says, after that, he, Jesus, appeared in another form unto two two of them. As they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it unto the residue, the rest, neither believed they them. Two other disciples, not a part of the original 12 or the 11 here, but they, two other ones, tell us that Jesus is alive. These are, of course, the Emmaus Road disciples that you find from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and on. The two disciples that are walking and they're talking, they're conversing about the events of the past couple days. And Jesus appears to them, although it says that they do not know it's Jesus. And they have this long conversation. Let me read you some of those verses just because I love that passage. I love what it reveals about the disciples' hearts. Yes, disciples of Jesus. And what they thought about what Jesus would do. This is Luke 24, verse 13. And it says, this is the same story from Mark, but just a longer version. It says, behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus. Which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned. Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. They could not tell it was Jesus. And he said unto them what manner of communications are these. That ye have said one to another as ye walk and are sad. Basically Jesus appears in their midst and he says what are you talking about? Why are you so gloomy? Why are you so depressed? And I love their reaction. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said to him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? 
basically, where have you been? (laughs) Where have you been the last couple days? Because a lot has gone on. (laughs) And notice Jesus presses and it says, what things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, notice how they describe him, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so, as the women had said, but him they saw not. That phrase in verse 21 is so revealing of their hope. We trusted that it had been him which should redeem Israel. It goes back to all that we've been talking about in Mark. The disciples of Jesus had their minds on the kingdom in an earthly sense. That this Jesus, when he says that he's the Messiah, he is going to be a ruler who takes out his sword and gets on a stallion and overthrows Rome through a mighty overthrowing of that kingdom. Israel would be restored. He would sit on the throne as a mighty warrior that has delivered Israel from Roman tyranny. That was their hope. Notice it says, we trusted that it was that guy. That guy should have been the one. And now it's been three days since he's been dead. Sit in that moment. This is what they were thinking. This is the pain that they were feeling. All of those hopes and dreams are gone. Crushed. And notice what Jesus says in verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ who have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know what he does? He gives them a Bible lesson. He shows them the scriptures and he says, all of this was promised from the beginning. All of this was coming to this. All of these things shouldn't confuse you. They shouldn't make you befuddled. They shouldn't make you so terrified and down and gloomy and sad. Because they were promised and predicted in scriptures. Because all scriptures point to me. To Jesus. I am the one that all of these words of the Bible come back to and find their center. I'm the focal point. All of this has been coming to this moment. I love that verse. He takes them. He takes them from Moses all the way through the prophets. All the way through the scriptures that they had to that day. And said, I'm the point. This is the point of all of them. And yet, notice, going back to Mark 16, the 11, they don't believe him. They don't believe this testimony of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says, verse 13, and they, the two Emmaus disciples, went and told it unto the residue, unto the rest. Neither believed they them. The apostles are still in their pain. 
The aftermath of the cross wasn't triumphant. It was painful. It was devastating. It was crushing. And yet all of that changes in a single moment. Because at first we have the pain of Jesus' followers in the aftermath of the cross. But notice in 14, uh, down through the rest of the chapter in Mark, six, in Mark chapter 16, we have here the power of Jesus' cross in the aftermath of the resurrection. Because notice this. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he appeared. Jesus appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief. And hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Think about the disciples now. Go back to them. Put yourself in their mindset. They're at dinner. They're having dinner here in the same room. Yes, perhaps where all of these people had been coming in and out and telling them they had seen Jesus. And they're having dinner and suddenly Jesus appears. He comes in through the door. I always imagine that uh, several of the, of the disciples had several spit takes, <laughs> choking on food. <laughs> Jesus, and he's there in their midst. And he's standing in front of them, just as he said that he would. He manifests, he reveals himself to them, and he proceeds to rebuke them for, as it says, their unbelief and hardness of heart. We've referenced every time, going starting at Mark chapter 8, all the way through here, every time Jesus has predicted his cross, he has predicted the resurrection too. Every time. He predicts his death, and he also says that after three days, I will rise again. This should not have been unexpected, but it was. Their minds were focused on other things other than what Jesus was trying to show them. And again, this is the detail that's included in the angel's message. If you go back to verse 7, notice what the angel says to them. It says, notice at the end, it says, There shall ye see him as he said unto you. He's told you that you would see him after his death. He's told you already these things were a part of his message. The apostles missed this. And here... Now, Jesus is standing in front of them. All of it was true. He is there in bodily form. He is there breathing in front of them. He had risen from the dead from a, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, a literal death with a literal body. That's how he raised. One that was tangible. One that was touchable. Going back to John chapter 20, Thomas is able to touch his hands and his side. They are able to fall at the feet of this Jesus. He's not just some ethereal spiritual form. He comes and raises from the dead in body. This, by the way, as we've been covering these resurrection narratives, these accounts of Jesus' passion and death, we've noticed some of these odd ideas people try to come up with about these events. But the thing that you have to believe is that Jesus rose from the dead with a literal body. Some try to say, by the way, that, that all these post-crucifixion uh, appearances of Jesus are just visions. That they're just hallucinations. That all of these people, they just imagined to see him. Which I think is a really harebrained theory. If you can think about the fact that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are told that Jesus at one time appeared unto 500 people at one time. They were all hallucinating the same thing. 
at one time. And again, Paul in that chapter, he says adamantly that he's appeared unto these people and unto these people. And he says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, and to 500 people at once. And he goes on to say, at least in that moment, that these people are still alive. As if to say that you can go up to their house and you can ask them about this moment. It's not something they've made up. It's something that they would say is adamantly true. We saw Jesus. Others try to say that he did not rise because his body was stolen. And in fact, some people like to say that the apostles did it. That the apostles were the ones, the conspirators behind this sort of elaborate hoax to keep the movement of Jesus going. Which, if you just look at their reaction, you can see is completely false. (laughs) They aren't trying to keep this thing going. They are absolutely devastated in this moment that all of this is now done. All of this is finished. And also, do you really think that these same fearful apostles who are locking themselves away in an upper room would also risk their lives to die for the sake of a hoax? Just read the whole book of Acts. Read the things that the apostles go through and endure for the sake of the good news of the resurrection. They wouldn't risk their lives for some ploy or some scheme that they came up with. To trick people into believing in something. This is something that they knew was real and factual. It was something that they could go back and say. We witnessed this. We were there. He appeared unto us. And notice I love this. That Jesus enters into this room. Into the midst of all the apostles pain. And there he appears and gives them power. Notice verse 15. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these things shall follow them that believe in my name. Shall they cast out devils? They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Here. This ragtag bunch of unbelieving and hard-hearted apostles are now given power to carry on the mission of Jesus. A mission of healing and restoration and salvation. You can see here in this moment, look at verse 19. It says, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they, the eleven and the other disciples, went forth... And preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So from fearing what would happen to them to now. They are going about preaching everywhere. Risking their lives for the fact of the gospel. Very indeed, very rightly we can say that their lives have been transfigured. Transformed by the fact of the resurrection and the cross. From a thing to uh, fear. Jesus' passion and death. Which caused so much pain. Is now the thing to glory in. The thing to hope in. The thing to believe in. And I have to bring you to this. I want to show you examples of this. Go to Acts. I want to turn to several passages in Acts. So you can see this. I want you to see this dichotomy. Between these apostles who feared. And then the apostles who appear. The very same ones. 
Who are everywhere in the book of Acts. Preaching confidently and boldly of the fact of the resurrection. Look at Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 24. It says this. Whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was not possible that God could be held by death. You know who spoke those words? Peter. The one who had a few weeks or months, however long this was, uh, uh, denied the Lord Jesus in the hour of his need, is now here boldly declaring, yes, this is the sermon after Pentecost, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's now boldly declaring the fact that this resurrection is true and it's real because Jesus was so powerful, he could not be held by death. Look at verse 22. He says, he stands, this is Peter standing up and preaching. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. As ye yourselves know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou hast made, shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren... Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is within us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing before this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord sat unto my, my Lord. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let me ask you. Does that sound like a man who's trying to convince you of a hoax? Does that sound like a man who's trying to swindle you into believing this hallucinatory story that he's made up? Over and over again, he says, I am adamant about this. This is true. We are all witnesses of it. That this Jesus you crucified, that he is the Lord. He is both Lord and Christ, he says. Peter's life had been utterly and entirely transfigured, transformed by what he saw. The resurrection of Jesus, when he entered into that room, it changed everything that he had come to learn and know about Jesus. This is what you'll find throughout Acts. Let me take you to a few others. I just want you to see this. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 10. I get so excited about this. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. It says, be it known unto you all. This is Peter again speaking. 
And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven which is given among men whereby we must be saved. Does he sound timid? Does he sound confused? Does he sound like he's trying to keep a made-up story together? Notice Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 49, or excuse me, 39 of Acts chapter 10. Once again, Peter is speaking in a sermon, Acts 10, 39, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that, he, that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You get the point. There's several other passages I could take you to. But the belabored point of Acts is that the, the apostles themselves have had their whole existence transfigured by the fact that they saw Jesus' resurrected form in front of them. His resurrected body in their midst. As we sang. It was the seal of the promise. The empty tomb is the seal of the promise. That all of this is true. All of this is real. That all of what Jesus has said was true. And this power my friends. It continues even to this day. To transform lives. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do it all? Why do we even make any sort of effort? It's because this Jesus is alive. It is real. It is true. We are all witnesses of it by faith. That this Jesus is alive. He is not here. He is not rotting. He is not still in that tomb with his, bud, with his bones turned to dust and ash. He is alive in heaven right now. Breathing on your behalf. Interceding on your behalf. That's why we are here. The power of the resurrection continues to empower us even to this day. I want to read you this. I don't often try and read long quotes from guys, but I love the sermons of Alexander McLaren. And he says something that is so applicable to what I'm trying to convey. And it says this. Alexander McLaren says, Easter Day transfigures the gloom of the day of, of the crucifixion and the rising sun of its morning guilds and explains the cross. Now it stands forth as the great redeeming power of the world where my sins and yours and the whole world have been expiated and done away with. And now instead of being ignominy, it is glory. And instead of being defeat, it is victory. And instead of looking upon that death as the lowest point of the master's humiliation, we may look upon it as he himself did, as the highest point of his glory. For the cross then becomes his great means of winning men to himself and the very throne of his power on the historical fact of a resurrection depend all the worth and meaning of the death of Christ. 
Easter transfigures Good Friday into hope and victory and glory. We have a living hope. I didn't pick that song, so good on Tommy and Kim for picking that song, even before they knew that I would be in this passage on this Sunday. Because that is indeed what we have here this morning. A living hope. Who is alive right now. Who he himself is the seal of the promise. This empty tomb serves as the ultimate divine referendum on all that Jesus has ever said or done. It is true. All of it. That's what the tomb says. All of those things that he said about grace and glory and grace and truth and forgiveness and remission of sins and righteousness. All of it is true. You can bank on Jesus' words. You can count on these words because they are reliable and foundational. Because Jesus did not stay in that grave. You can stake your life on the power of the cross because of the power of the resurrection. It is for you in this moment. Again, you want to know why we come here on Sunday mornings? You want to know why we assemble on the first day of the week? It's because of a Sunday morning 2,000 odd years ago. When Jesus walked out of a grave. And therefore sealed the promise and the covenant that all of the sins that man has committed by faith are done away with because of what he did on the cross. It confirms forever the fact that Jesus says in the covenant made with us that he will forget our sins. He says that he will remember them no more. It's because of the power of the resurrection. He walks out of that tomb in triumph. In fullness of glory, knowing that he has shouldered and settled all of the world's sins. And that any who come to him and believe, their sins are remembered no more. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have been through, no matter what your life has looked like, here this morning, because of the power of the resurrection and the cross, you can have your sins remembered no more by the Lord of all. That's the gospel. The unexpected gospel of God which declares God himself has taken our sin away from us. And has risen again. That's why we come to church on Sunday mornings. And every Sunday after that Sunday we assemble because of that power. The power of the resurrection. That's why we are here. To declare that same gospel, as it says here, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, to every creature. To declare that their sins have been cleared. That there's therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ. Why? Because God has taken their condemnation away from them. That their sins are settled. Their sins are done away with. Because of Christ. The one who walked out of a tomb. Sealing the promise and saying to his apostles and to us 2,000 odd years later that all of this is true. Remission of sins is with me. He sits on the right hand of God. And as the apostles everywhere say, he is the one through whom salvation is found. The resurrection transfigured the lives of the apostles. 
From being men of fear to being men of courageous, bold faith. It could do the same for you this morning. It can transfigure your life from one that is racked and riddled with sin to one that is faithful and true and righteous. Why? Because he is righteous for us. The power of the resurrection still transfigures lives to this day. Has your life been changed? Have you been made to see that this Savior is yours? There's a wonderful fact. Let me just highlight this really quickly and then I'll close. In verse 7. Remember the angel? He's speaking to the women and he says, But go your way, tell his disciples that he goeth before you into Galilee. Did you catch the fact that he includes Peter by name? He remembers Peter's denial as that's what it's implying. Yes, tell all the disciples, but especially Peter. Make sure he knows that I want him. Make sure he knows that I have done all this for his sake. This morning, you can put your name into that. Because Jesus has done all of this for you. For your sake. Your sin has been done away with. Your cruelty, your, uh, uh, your rebellion has been done away with because of Jesus. And he says to you, I have done this for you. My friends, this is Jesus. The Lord, as he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, who has come to not to be served, but to serve. This is our unexpected Savior who is alive right now. Let us pray.